Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this epiphany season, from beginning in epiphany and then going all the way to Lent, I thought it would be uh, helpful to us to study the rise and fall of the first king of Israel. And his name is Saul, King Saul. And Saul rises to power in a time of great chaos, tremendous transition. Uh, When Israel settled in the promised land, God said, we're going to do this a little differently. One of the ways you're going to witness to my glory is that you're going to be led in a In a radically different way, you're going to be led by judges, and I'll be your king. And they tried that for several hundred years, about 400. Uh, Sometimes it worked, sometimes it did not. More often than not, it did not. And by the end of the book of Judges, you you see uh, Israel descending into a moral and spiritual anarchy that is, is terrifying. Uh, There's a story at the end of the book of Judges that is perverse and repulsive, uh, but it's worth thinking about because it illustrates just how low uh, the nation had sunk. 
a, a, a Levite, one of the spiritual leaders of Israel, invites a, a traveler into his home. The men in the town uh, become a drunken mob. They come bang on his door and they say, we, we want to rape him, send him out. And instead of uh, sending him out, he offers his daughter and his wife. And they grab the wife, drag the wife out, gang rape her through the evening, throw her on the doorstep. She dies in the morning. Uh, the, the Levite, the spiritual leader, chops her into 12 pieces, puts the body parts onto 12 donkeys, and then sends them across all of Israel. And what's even more terrifying is in the next chapter, this man has been elected to lead Israel into battle. This is the kind of spiritual leader that uh, was leading Israel at that time. And so the historian who writes Judges at the end of his account, he writes these famous words. He says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now Samuel tries to make some reforms, uh, but he appoints his own two sons as judges. They failed to lead well. That's why verse 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. If there was one thing a leader in Israel was supposed to do, it was to, uh, to stand up for justice, to create a just and harmonious community. And they failed. So, like often happens, you have a, a political revolution, essentially, that is about to take place. At this point, uh, you had uh, the tribes scattered all over the Promised Land. Elders would lead each village, each tribe. The elders would come together in a great caravan, and they go to where the prophet is living. He's living in his hometown of Ramah, and, and they're going to make a petition. They're going to come and say, look, this isn't working. We need a change. Uh, we need a king. And so they do. They present their demands. They say, behold, you're old. Your sons don't walk in our ways. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now what happens next changes redemptive history forever. Samuel's not pleased. He complains to the Lord, and the Lord says, Obey the voice of the people and everything they tell you. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. Now, why does God say this? I mean, clearly at this point, Israel needs a king. Uh, the Philistines have settled along uh, the Jordan. They uh, are warring against Israel, uh, moving from a tribal state to a, a centralized monarchy. Monarchy is, is how all uh, nation states progress. Uh, it's going to be more economic. It's going to be more efficient. They can muster armies. They can tax. Uh, why doesn't God see this? What is wrong with God that he doesn't want them to have a king? Well, we have to remember that Israel was not supposed to be like the other nations. And one of the ways was through the way she was led. The other nations uh, were, were led in, 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 with kings who were thought to be a part of the pantheon of the gods. So the other nations believed that there were many gods, and the king was one of the gods. And the king then had all the power and all the money and all the wealth, and he might share it with a few nobles, but then everybody else served the king as serfs. And God in Israel says, you know, we're going to do it very differently. Instead of giving you a king who's one of the gods, I'm your king. And instead of having all the power invested in one human being, 
it's all going to be in me, and I'm going to distribute it equally throughout Israel. And you're going to lead collaboratively, collaboratively under my guidance. That's the plan. So this is why God is so upset when they come and ask for a king, because they are abandoning their mission. They were supposed to be different. And so, of course, the next lines we read is, And God struck the elders of Israel dead and declared, No, my people shall never be led by a king. And a great hole opened up and swallowed them. No, we read it all. God says, Samuel, obey him. Only solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, that is a very puzzling movement in the story. It's, I think it's very revealing of an important spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth is this. Sometimes God will allow us to do something he knows isn't best. Hmm. God has given us this terrible, wonderful gift of freedom. It's, it's wonderful, right? Because you, you, you can't love God if you're not free to love Him. We have to be free to obey Him and free to love Him. But it's terrible because we're also free to do things that God doesn't think we should do. So be careful what you ask for. You might get it. During our seventh year as a congregation, uh, if you were here then, we talked a lot about this. We, talked, we took a Sabbath year, and one of the things that uh, came clear to me in that time was that one of the Ten Commandments is to take a weekly Sabbath, and that I wasn't doing it. So I started to take a Sabbath on Thursdays, one day totally devoted to rest and scripture and renewal and things like that. Well, last fall, when um, the new Sentinel said, hey, would you write a monthly column for us on the city? I, I was so excited, and, and, and uh, I said yes, and, and, and then it kind of occurred to me, uh, I don't have really time to do that, but I want to do it. So I reasoned, you know, I love to write. It's kind of an outlet for me. It's sort of like other people's pottery and painting, and I, I'm just going to do this on my Sabbath. I mean, how could you argue against that? It's just fun. I mean, you don't want to be legalistic about this anyway, because we all know where legalism ends, and don't judge me. Don't judge me. And so at first I started writing for about an hour, and then it was two, and then about three, and Sandy noticed it, and a couple others noticed it. And I kept, I just really wanted to do it, and I didn't know how else I could do it. Well, I kept doing that, and then right before Christmas, uh, the editor calls and says, you know, we've had some cuts. I'm going to have to cancel the January issue and don't know where the thing's going at all. And it was as if the Lord was saying, you really want to do this? Okay. Do you want to work on your Sabbath? Uh, you know that writing is some of the hardest work that you do. You know that you're not really resting that way, but go ahead, knock yourself out. And by the way, I can take this gig away anytime I want. So God let me do something I really wanted that wasn't his best. How about you? Is there something in your life right now as you think about this new year? Is there a path 
that you're starting to walk down. It, it might be a vocational path. It might be a, a path of relationship. It might have something to do with how you spend your leisure time. It, it might be anything. But it, it's something that you really want, and you want it badly. But you really haven't asked God whether it's the right thing. God will let you do it. Even if it's not his best. See, one of the things that's so sneaky about this is the elders of Israel, they had a good case. I mean, it made sense to have a king. Politically, economically, historically, any consultant would have come in and said, yep, uh, you guys need a king. I mean, it made sense, and you can just keep, kind of see him on the little donkeys riding to Ramah. We, need a, we really do need a king. Samuel's not going to like that. Yeah, but he's got to see that this is the best thing. Yeah, we need a king. Everybody agrees. There's even a Harvard study on this that says, we need a king. Come on, let's go ask him for a king. And they'd so convinced themselves of the rightness of what they wanted that it didn't even occur to them that God's strange ways might be different. And I think a lot of our prayers, you know, if we track them, a lot of our prayers kind of begin with, God, I want this, I want this, I want this, I need this, I'm going to take this, I have to have this, I've got this. What went wrong with this? Where were you, God? And there's not much of a pause in between of, God, I really want to start this business. God, I, I really want to date this girl. God, I, I, I really want to take this job. But is that what you want? Because I'm laying it all down before... You don't see the elders of Israel. Lord, we humble ourselves. This is our plan. We lay it down before you. We know what you said about being different. This is a different course. We're not sure. We lay it down. No, you don't see that. God, we need a king. We know what we need. Give it to us. Is there a part of your life that's like that tonight? You've already figured out what's best. You're just waiting for God to... Now, the confusing part, the hard part, is that when you push a little deeper, what what are they really doing here? Well, they're afraid. And they look around them, and they can see how their neighbors pull this thing off. And it's this guy in a king suit with a with little outfit and the chariots and the swords. And, and, and they think, well, that's working for them. I need that. I can see that. I can't see you. I want that. And I think that's why we are so obsessively committed to our lesser dreams and desires. Because we are terrified of letting them go and trusting Him. I think it's why we so often miss it. We convince ourselves with all sorts of scriptures that we're doing the right thing and we want the right thing, but our heart is demanding security from a little guy in a king suit. You know, we often call this, we often call this living by faith. And, and we equate passion and certainty with God's call. Sometimes that's true, but it's not always the case. If, if somebody is really fired up about something, 
and, and they, they, they think God's shown it to them, and they're relatively persuasive and attractive in how they present themselves, we usually just back off. Well, if he said he heard from the Lord and he's that passionate, how could I question that? Well, the elders of Israel were very fired up about this king. They were dead wrong. Just this recurring theme in my devotional life lately has been to be aware of self-deception. Of just how easy it is as a human being to deceive ourselves because there's so much going on in the basement that moves us to demand security from lesser gods. One of my devotions this week was that little part in Mark where Jesus is on the cross and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and in Aramaic, and Aramaic, and somebody's walking by and hears him and thinks he's saying, Elijah, Elijah. And of course, he's not. He's quoting a, a song. And as I reflected on that, what I sensed the Lord say was, Doug, do you see how easy it is to think you've heard what the Lord said and miss it entirely? I think we need to be more humble about this. Very easy to be like the elders of Israel. Now, let's look at what God does. He does warn them about the dangers of their decision. Um, and, and you get this speech in verses 10 to 18 about the, the abuses of monarchy. And the, the, the governing word here is take. Uh, the king, Samuel, said, he's going to take your money, he's going to take your donkeys, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your grain. And then Samuel says, you shall be as slaves, and in that day you shall cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. The Lord won't answer you on that day. And what happens next in biblical history is basically a fulfillment of, of that prophecy. First uh, Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, particularly in the life of Solomon, what you see is this play out. The king, the monarchy didn't work out that well for Israel. Now, in a similar way, I do believe God warns us when we're considering a path that's not his best. And I I looked up all the words for warning in the Bible today, and I found five different ways God warns his people in Scripture that they're taking a a path they shouldn't take. Uh, dreams. Matthew 2, verse 12, an uh, angel comes to Joseph and Mary and says, don't go back that way. Angels. Acts 10, verse 22, Cornelius the centurion is, is warned from God by an angel to go to a house and hear the gospel. Preaching. Uh, Acts 20, verse 31, Paul says to the Ephesians, remember, or the Thessalonians, remember for three years, night and day, how I warned you through preaching. The study of Scripture would be a fourth way God warns us. Psalm 19, by your teachings, Lord, I'm warned. By obeying them, I'm greatly rewarded. And then lastly, through the counsel of friends. My friends, we beg you to warn anyone who isn't living right. Now, I think that fifth one is very, very important to go along with the first four. And and this, I think, is, is one of the things that evangelical Protestants maybe err on a little bit, is that we tend to gravitate towards an individualistic, privatized faith. 
And so if I was fasting and I heard it, it must be right. If Jesus showed me this in prayer, and especially if there was some emotion, we love emotion. If I cried, it must be God. And normally that's enough. But what what I think Scripture suggests is while those warnings are very important, the warnings that come through dreams in your sleep and, and angels and preaching and the study of Scripture, there's also the counsel of the body of Christ, and that's so important because we can deceive ourselves. So, so, so important. And I wonder how much heartache would have been spared if a friend or a loved one would have said, you know, I know the wedding is two months away, but I just have some real red flags. How much heartache would have been spared if if someone said, you know, I'm just not tracking with the vision you have for this project. How much heartache would have been spared if a friend had said, you know, you say you want to be a social worker, but I'm just not persuaded that that really is God's call for your life. Are you listening for the warning signs? Nate Silver, in a, in a book called The Signal and the Noise, talks a lot about how often we miss warning signs because the model that we're using to interpret the data excludes them. For example, uh, he says that in the Great Recession, 2007-2008, uh, the, the best economists in the world missed the great the recession coming because they couldn't see some very obvious warning signs that looking back are, are very plain. And he says the reason why is they had a model of how the economy that was supposed to work that kept them from seeing the warning signs. And I think the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We have a particular model of the way we think life is supposed to work, but... Sometimes that model is so secular that we pay no attention to the dream God might send us. Sometimes the model is so secular that even when we're in Scripture and God is trying to talk to us, all we can think of is why our wife should have been here tonight. Sometimes our model is so secular that when God tries to break through in a conversation over lunch or over breakfast and a friend stumbles and trips and and says, I feel terrible about saying this, but I'm just not comfortable, we dismiss it as they're not for us. So are, are you open to the warnings of God? I mean, when you're in the Word of God, and and there is that sense of, this sense of, I'm not sure this is right, what do you do with that? And when you're you're in a service, and and we're in, in the Eucharist, and we're in the liturgy, and in the worship, and in the Word, and God starts to speak and bore down, and you start to question whether or not something's right, what do you do with that? Do you heed the warnings of God? The leaders of Israel did not. 
But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there will be a king over us. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, the Lord said, Obey their voice and make them a king. Now what happens next is is very interesting. He gives them what they want. The next three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, do great things. Uh, They start well. Each of them fails ultimately. After Solomon, uh, the next two kings blow it entirely. Israel falls into civil war. Ten tribes are wiped out by a genocide by the Assyrians in the middle of the 8th century. Israel's never the same again. It doesn't end well. However, God brings the Messiah to the world through the Davidic monarchy. And I think that's an important principle to keep in mind, that even though... God warned them, even though God was not pleased with them, He doesn't abandon them, He doesn't abort the project, He continues in His grace to pursue them and figure out another way to get the job done. The astounding grace of God at work. So I don't want you to hear tonight, you know, maybe some of you are having this sick feeling of, oh my goodness. I have done exactly that. Oh, no. I see it now. I didn't respond. I didn't heed the warning. Oh, I see it. I don't want you to think that it's game over. That you're out. What I want you to understand is start again. And wherever you are tonight, move towards obedience. Move towards rightly aligning with God's plan. Move towards heeding the warning. Move towards responding to the feedback you get from the body of Christ. Quit making decisions by yourself. Start over. That's the beauty of faith, is that you don't get a couple strikes and then you're done. A friend of mine... Uh, I talked with him after Christmas, and he had a 20-year-old son home from college, a college sophomore, and the son had fallen in love, and uh, the son comes up to his dad and says that uh, his girlfriend's in Massachusetts, and, and uh, dad, he wants to drive up there and back in three days uh, through a snowstorm uh, and cover about 2,000 miles uh, because she needs him. And the dad reasons with the son. And he pulls out the map. And he shows him the road. He pulls out the weather. He talks about you're driving a Kia that doesn't go well in blizzards. And they have this whole discussion. But the son is in love. And so, what does the father do? He doesn't lock him in his room. He says, you're an adult, son. I've warned you. Do what you think is best. And that's the terrible and wonderful freedom God has given us. Let's pray.